Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Welcome to Pivotal Film, a podcast where two guys share the 100 most pivotal films in their view of film and filmmaking. Today's episode 98. I'm Mario Ponzio. 98. I'm Mario Ponzio. I'm Tom Nolan. And we just switched shit up on you. <laughs> Usually Tom introduces this, and I was like, hey, Tom. I actually has re- before every episode we actually play the music because I'm a weirdo who needs to hear the song like react obviously no we gotta get pumped all up. that in post but I'm like you need to fucking play it and as he's playing it I'm like pointing at myself and I'm like I'm gonna do the intro and, and then I, I did and I put my hands up like what's going on type of gesture basically in about three episodes it's just gonna be me <laughs> which is gonna be weird because I don't have any of the audio equipment or the computer or the editing skills so <laughs> no I'll be we'll there. see I'll be there I'll just be your producer and I'll yeah. be there to be like, mm-hmm. Like my intern, mm-hmm. so you'll like do all the sure. Yeah, okay, that'd be good. I'll make all your photocopies. Well, you know, I'll take I'm, your dictation. I'm the face of radio, so I'll get on your dicta dictaphone. No, let's 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 stop this now. <laughs> okay, so um, usually in this A block, because that's how these things work. We call them blocks in the business. Yeah, well, it's funny because now that we've started doing this, I've actually noticed people saying that a lot. Really? In different podcasts and on the radio and <laughs> things like that. You know, it's like they, confirmation bias. Well, they said it on, you know, we're from, we're broadcasting um, from uh, our posh Pivotal Film Studio. Pivotal Film Studios on, uh, the, uh, on the bowels of Mario's yacht. Um, exactly. I'm actually <clears throat> looking at a lamp that its frame is a town crier. Yep. Cost me thousands, yep. thousands of thousands dollars. Thousands of dollars. Um, $20 at a thrift store, but whatever. But the Colin McEnroe show the other day. He said... A local New Haven NPR show. Yes. For he, the thousands of listeners we have in Europe and Asia. <laughs> you made... Colin McEnroe may be famous in Asia. Who knows? <laughs> they're like... They're listening to us, Colin McEnroe, <laughs> Faith Middleton, and Keith Olbermann's thoughts. Oh, man. They're getting a so, very skewed view of society. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he said, Mostly bad. He said A-Block, and I was in my car by myself, and I said A-Block. Well, yeah. We I mean, say that. I th- I, he may have said it first. So, but we're better than him. We're way better than him. Yeah. So, usually during this time, <laughs> we got way <laughs> off track. We talk about films we've recently seen. Unfortunately, I've been off camping in the rain, getting wet because I forgot to put a footprint down, and so I didn't able wasn't able to see any new movies this week. Tom, have you seen anything this week you want to talk about? I did. I went to see Ant Man and the Wasp. Ooh, the sequel to. Ant- I believe the Ant- Wasp, Ant Man, Ant Man, which is a sure. it's a DC movie, correct? No, it's a it's a Marvel movie. Oh, yeah, 
In case yeah. you haven't, in case you haven't heard of it, I sound like a real dick right now. In case, I, I, what, I, comic book films are good. I I, I enjoy them. I just just well, I think that's them. kind of one of the things that we. I just want to address. I don't want to talk anything about Ant Man movie. It was well, a, that's like, like we should hear your thoughts slightly. No, no, no. no. That's what I'm going to say. It's oh, a, okay. it's a perfectly. It stars Paul Rudd as Ant Man, Evangeline Lilly as uh, the Wasp. Uh, Michael Douglas is in it. Michelle Pfeiffer's in it. Walton Goggins is in it. Uh, Michael Pena is in it. Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne's in it. Um, uh, even... this, this one wasn't co-written by Edgar Wright, right? This is, I believe, he had nothing to do with this one. So you, did, did that lose anything with him? Not there's a lot of the quips in the original. Kind of felt no, like no, it's very quippy. I mean, it's a little. Um, I took my eight-year-old and my four and a half-year-old to see it, and I actually didn't feel weird at any point mm-hmm. during the movie. I actually felt weirder during the trailers. Um, they had to sit through a The Meg trailer, oh. a Mission Impossible Fallout trailer. Wait, wait, what's wrong with The Meg? It's a Jason Statham shark movie. But there's a couple of scenes where, like, the Megalodon, um, you know, comes out of nowhere. And oh, they right. just they just kind of jumped at that. Um, but be- also, Because of the fact that they're, they realize that Jason Statham shark movie is going to be coming out soon. Well, it's, they, yeah, they jumped when Jason Statham went on the snook. <laughs> oh. oh, God. Why is he still making movies? I, we had to leave the theater. They were just in tears. hysterics. Um, there was also a Dumbo trailer. So, yeah, I, I feel Danny like, DeVito on the top hat again. I Good job, like Tim Burton. Really, how, yeah, really doing new things. I don't want to talk about Tim Burton, but um, I don't think we will be talking. about I feel Tim like Burton. it's weird, and this is kind of what I wanted to say. Talk about this movie for is that I don't think they knew how to market this movie. I don't. It's a PG thirteen movie. But literally nothing happens in it. And it's coming off the back of, of the movie where everyone lost their shit over, which is right. you know, Infinity War. So this is, yeah, this is the first Marvel movie post-Infinity War. And I think some of the conversation was, was this going to have anything to do with the Infinity War? I mean, um, it, it has... It loo- from, very I, loosely I, I know it has some yeah. but only later the, on. But only in the scene... I mean, in, later on, in yeah. context of the movie, only in the scene in the middle of the credits. Does it have anything to do with I anything was, that happened? I kept, like, I kept saying later on to try to hide that, so... Who cares? Yeah. Remember, um, we don't care about spoilers here. But it's funny. Um, it's light, very light. Which, like, I, which all I, think the, is, I think so too. I think it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, you cannot have the the beats. I, I saw Infinity War. I actually really enjoyed Infinity War. I mean, it doesn't do anything different than any of the Marvel movies, despite what a lot of people are saying. I, you know, most of that stuff's gonna get undone by the next Avengers movie. Yeah. Um, does you know in this one in the end credit scene? Is everyone that was in this movie you just saw now dead? Yeah, no, exactly. No. Like, there's, there's definitely not. characters who only died in, in Infinity War probably aren't coming back. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Tom Hiddleston's gone, done. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those actors are done. Right. But we, you know they didn't just make but, $700 million domestic off of Black Panther. Like, no, guys, right. we're sticking to our guns. But spoiler guy's alert. Gone. Like, and so to even bring it back to Ant-Man, spoiler alert, like, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, um, yeah, Professor Van Dyne, who spends 30 years in the quantum realm, is the fact that they make a point of saying that she's developed all these quantum powers, like, and that can heal people. Do they make... The fact that she's only in the movie for five minutes total and she's developed all these powers, do they do that for no reason? No. They didn't do it for no reason. It's all fucking attached. Yeah. But it's it's But Avengers... But, you know, like, exactly. Infinity War... Infinity was, War was, was good. so he- but Black but Panther and Infinity War are so they're heavy. heavy. They're really heavy. And I so mean, I'm not sure why... I think my question is that I'm not sure why this film is taking such a beating for being so fun. Well, more from fans. I mean, I don't... I think... Nece- it's being, right, but it, it's not being beat down 
critically. I mean, critically, no, I think it's, it's, doing well. it's holding up fairly well critically. I think you're either into the most of the critics seem to be into the idea that they don't have to slog through. I mean, are we hearing Infinity War? Are we hearing a lot of fan backlash about? Yeah, that there's being? a lot of fan backlash. See, I've, I haven't really heard that. I've heard I've heard a lot of people say it's serviceable, which I mean, I think I haven't seen it yet, but from just from the first first Ant Man movie, I think that's a fine thing to say, and I think yeah. If there is that sort of backlash, you do need well, those slow moments. You need those low stakes. I think the back. I think the backlash comes from the fact that people are saying that this has less stakes than the original Ant Man. That it's just kind of it's a self-contained. I mean, it takes place in, in the span of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really just. It's a bunch of people. The villain has no, um, like crossover. She's not crossing over into anything like any other movies. She's now not the villain anymore yeah. of anything. Um, it's a movie that when it ends when its plot ends essentially the movie's over it's only in the extra scene do you get that kind of like sense that this is going to tie into something else Um, i think that's necessary i think so too and i'm not sure why um the marvel fan base is kind of so up in arms about the fact that it doesn't have more weight are we taking like as a culture have we decided to invest too much of ourselves into these Marvel Universe movies, and if they don't have the weight of something like the Infinity War, do we feel like we've kind of wasted our time? And I think it's almost a question of patience, too. Uh, you know, you have, you have Infinity War happens. People automatically want to see the next chapter in that story. So Ant-Man comes out two months afterwards, and they expect that to be a continuation of it, even though all the advertising says that it takes place before Infinity War. Um a couple. I mean, and, I think it takes place like shortly before. Yeah, Infinity but it, War, I mean, yeah. still, it does not. The action would not be affected by Infinity no. War, and and I think people are just impatient now. You know, obviously, everything obviously, ha- right. everything in Infinity War says that the next chapter in that story is going to be Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel, yeah, because that end credit scene right there shows you, you know, like we're not going to Ant Man's not going to fucking solve the crisis, you know. Um, no, Nick Fury doesn't signal for <laughs> Ant Man. <laughs> In the ni- you know, in the nineteen nineties, he's like Michael Pena, come in with Scientology oh, and save us. Man, I would love it. I mean, if to Michael be fair, Pena would come Thanos, in that movie. Thanos versus the Dark Lord Xenu would be a really excellent Avengers four plot twist. Oh, he would shoot corpses at them, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, like is that what happens? Like Thanos would be covered in thetans. You know, he'd get really depressed, and then he couldn't take psychiatric that's why medicine. So that, but that might explain. We just it. lost our Scientologist population. That's, that's why he's that's so fine. sad in Infinity War. Oh, right, the thetans, all the thetans. Um. But I think that's kind of a systemic issue. Like, you look at the Comic-Con trailers that came out. Um, I only and, saw the Fantastic Beast one. Yeah, I, I actually, that's the only one I really didn't see. Oh, you but, missed fat Johnny Depp, so no, good. It's unfortunate. We could have got Colin Farrell actually playing a decent <laughs> villain. They're like, no, let's get Johnny Depp, somebody who's like 15 years past his prime, who's also chosen to do Kevin Smith films now that his daughter in roles. Going off on a tangent. Anyways... <laughs> Of the five major trailers, three of them were superhero movies. Yeah. You had Shazam, you had Aquaman, and, and to an extent, Glass. And even uh. even still, something like Godzilla has a lot of those hallmarks of something that would be like a superhero uh-huh. or, or kind of like that. It's the same of kind of film. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think the expectation now is that the stakes have to be constantly raised. And I think that's a problem. Where are we going then? If yeah, the no, exactly. Constantly raised. I mean, there, there's nowhere for it to go. And I, I think that, that that is a major issue. Um, I, I, the meme joke for a long time was the fact that all these superhero movies needed the bright, shining beam into the sky that was going to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. And 
when films try to go away from that, as it sounds like Ant-Man and the Wasp did, definitely Ant-Man did. I mean, Ant-Man's yeah. stakes aren't even that high. He's going to sell, the villain in that um, Yellow Jacket's going to sell armaments to Hydra. And that's not, that's not, that's somewhat of a, a big deal, but it's not really that big deal. Even yeah. like, like in Iron Man, it's Iron Monger just wants to take over a company and be a weapons dealer. Right. You know, you need those because you need those, those, those stakes. But, and that's kind of the problem is that when you have a, such a saturation in the market of these superhero movies, I mean, this year you've had, you've already had Black seven. Panther. You've, you've had, already had, you've you had know, Black Panther, Infinity, Infinity War. You had Incredibles 2, Deadpool 2, oh, God. Ant-Man and Ant-Man. the Wasp. And this is all before August. Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. There's nothing even, what's even, what's coming we still in the winter? Aqu- we still have Aquaman oh, coming out this Jesus year. Christ. I think that might be. Maybe that's it. Um, I'm not so much on the pulse. I know they push back one of those X-Men movies. Um, but when you have so many of these movies and all of them are trying to raise the stakes, and even this has kind of like been a problem, I think, with the tentpole summer movies, um, when something push it pulls back because it needs to, because you cannot be spending $300 million, $200 million in each film just going batshit crazy, people feel underwhelmed. And I don't think that's... That's appropriate, and I think I think it just shows to, you know, I don't think the superhero movies are the problem because they make money, you know. Yeah. Um, but the fact that the expectation is the problem. I, looking back twenty years, you know, you'd have like the one or two or three big tentpole theatrical releases. You know, nineteen ninety six had like Independence Day, and not all around it. Ninety seven yeah. had Men in Black, and now surrounded by something like Volcano and Deep Impact. Right. Which you, were, you would get a couple. Yeah, no, and the exactly. other ones, and like this one would be, you would always know this is the big one, and these are the ones that we're going to try to piggyback off off of it, and then that was it. But then you get to like last summer, where you know Dunkirk comes out in the middle of the summer, and it makes a ton of money because I think people are just starved well, for exactly. these huge. They they have to go see a huge movie every weekend. Yeah, like no, what exactly. huge movie am I going to see this weekend? And it's not even now the summer. You look at Star Wars now being pushed over to December. Yeah, you know. And so that becomes a problem. Or Black Panther in February. Oh, exactly. A, a dead zone. Like your first major films didn't used to come out until March. Yeah. Um, and that's a big problem, I think. And I think the big problem is, is not so much the oversaturation. I mean, yeah, it is the oversaturation, but it is the expectation of bigger each and every week. Well, it's bigger each and every week and also just as easy each and every week because hmm. something like Annihilation, where the stakes are presumably very high in that movie. Um, nobody went to see that movie well, because it didn't it's really even, complicated. It's not even that. It didn't even get a chance. No. I mean, um, it was out for a was couple. It, was it Paramount or Universal? Universal? When the studio sold the rights to Netflix, um, you know, in every every market except for America and like a few others, so they didn't need it to, to be out in theaters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they just they sold they sold it basically for the cost of production and just wrote it off because they they didn't have any faith in the product. Yeah, and you see that a lot happening now where they just. They don't have faith in the product. And I think that's a big issue in the fact that, that they're always looking for the next step. And another big issue, I think, is is a lot of these kind of good independent directors now are being – a studio sees what an independent director is doing, and they kind of like suck them up into their big tentpole project. We have Ryan Coogler doing Black Panther, um, you know, even coming of Aquaman by James Wan. I mean, he's already done Furious 7, but he's a big – in you know smaller film horror mm-hmm. director, so you have like Colin Trevorrow, who turned out actually just to be terrible at his job, but he had some promise and safety. Well, not you, guaranteed. You also had the guys that did Solo that got fired. But oh, like they were well, exactly. guys too. Well, yeah. they they had had twenty. They had the Twenty One Jump Street series already, and um, 
Lego films, Lego movie. But mm-hmm. but those exactly they're these independent directors kind of being sucked up and it's into these big tentpole films and then they they just stay there, and you have to worry almost about the stagnation that's going to happen in the independent film scene because you used to see. And you still see to some extent, like Jeremy Solner, who we talked about last week, you know, mm-hmm. he's had a, he's had a string of nice, smaller independent films. Um, you know, Adam Wingard, um, same story. But even there, Jeremy Solner just got picked up for, he's going to do a Netflix movie later on this year, which I think has a decent sized budget. Uh, Adam Wingard got $60 million to do a fucking Death Note movie for some reason. Um, and then I think that might be a problem as well. And the fact that, these directors aren't given a lot of time to perfect their craft. Mm. And so that's why they might go back onto the framework of what works in, in a, in a superhero film or works in a big budget film. Well, it's kind of something we're going to talk about um, later in this podcast with the movie is that I, you know, maybe some of these directors have are losing the ability to make something without um, a $16 million budget or a, a you know a fleet of computers that can kind of do whatever they want exactly um they've kind of lost the ability um or they've they're losing the craft you know and, I mean? and we, or we the, like they're not even given the chance to develop to create the their voice right. and that's a problem you know if a director is given two movies before he's asked to step up to the plate of a hundred two hundred million dollar uh, feature a court with a lot of studio interference of course, they're going to be able to to really create their voice, and that's what like was impressive about something like Thor Ragnarok and the fact that he was able to get a bit of that hunter the builder people, um, you know, bit of that yeah. voice of. But what's the next like? What's the next Marvel movie he does going to look like? No, you know what I mean. Exactly. Is it going to be? Are they going to allow him to do the same thing? And if, or is or, he going to be stuck in that same doing that same, same thing forever? Sort of shtick forever. Yeah. And I hate to use the word shtick, but that's what it's going to become. It was just shtick. The first, I mean, it's it's a shtick in Thor. Yeah. No. Exactly. It's just, an, it's just a new, different kind of shtick. No, exactly, and that's that's a that's a, that's a concern, you know. I like hopefully it works out, but I would be concerned. Yeah, exactly. When, when you don't, when you have every time you have a promising independent director, or every time you have a promising premise, just being sucked up because there's such a demand for these huge projects, and there's not enough directors around. I mean, we used to have it that Roland Emmerich and Steven Spielberg were the ones handling all of it because there was so few. Right. But when there needs to be 30 to 50 a year, well, I mean, you, you need of, to take up whoever you can. So, you know, I mentioned Harry, you know, the Fantastic Beasts movie earlier, and it was interesting that if you tr- track the trajectory... Well, luckily there's David Yates. David Yates is just well, there kind of, for the past, like, 20 years. Exactly. So. That's what I'm saying, is that they kept, you know, Christopher Columbus did the first two awful Harry Potter movies, and then Alfonso Coron did, you know, the third one, and then I forget who did the fourth one, but literally David Yates has done every single one since. Did Dave, I thought David Yates, David Yates didn't do um, Goblet of Fire? I thought he did do it. No, it was Fire. someone else did was Goblet it? of Fire. Yeah, and David Yates did, you know, um, Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince. No, exactly. Because he, he can do it. He knows what, they, he knows what the, the franchise demands, um, and he's good at doing this kind of movie. Um, and he also can make a movie that lives up to the expectations of the fans, so you don't get into a situation like in with a solo thing where the Disney executives think that this, you know, apparently very filthy independent looking Star Wars movie is not going to resonate with traditionalist Star Wars fans. So they bring in a guy, Mike Newell did. Oh, did Mike Newell. Yeah. Um, so they bring in Ron Howard who doesn't, he, Ron Howard doesn't know how to make this movie. No, exactly. At all. He doesn't know how to make, he doesn't a, care. He doesn't care. $150 million Star Wars movie. He doesn't make that movie. He makes beautiful mind. Yeah. And you know, 
Apollo 13. Apollo 13. That's the movie he makes. Yeah. And that's so you you can't have I don't know these 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 um, studios seem like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, exactly. And then when they when they realize that the cake is bad, they're just like, "Oh, I don't I didn't want that cake to begin with. I want I want this." Yeah. And that's the problem. Like hope hopefully it resolves itself or hopefully, you know, we we see a, a pullback in 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 the expectations. Um Francis Ford Coppola is still alive. Get yeah. him to direct one of these movies. He did Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> it's the second time we mentioned that in this podcast, by the way. I actually want to stick in a Bram Stoker's Dracula reference in every episode now. We'll, ta- yeah, we'll, we'll timestamp it, too. That's, that's, our, that's our goal now. Sure. So, um, luckily, I don't think any of the movies that are coming up um, are in danger of knocking anything off of our list. I, I know. I have a spot for the Meg. <laughs> and, and the Bumblebee movie. What's the bum? Oh yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, that looks ridiculous. So you I know. thought that was an advertisement. Oh, when I saw the trailer, I was just like, "This is just looks like a really high budget advertisement for for Volkswagen for John Cena." Bucks. John Cena is in that movie, by the way. Is he? Who yeah. is he? He's John Cena. Oh, is he play like the? the I'm military sure he plays guy? somebody in the military. All right. Well, um, but we don't have to worry about that. What we have to worry about right now is, is our number ninety eight. All right. We'll be right back with my number ninety eight right after this break. Welcome back to Pivotal Film. Uh, before we get on to our 98, every week, as you know by now, we uh, crack open a beer for the purpose of our discussion. And this week, we have from Branded Brewing out of Bidford, Bidford Maine, huh. Green Warden. It's an ale brewed with spruce tips. Oh, man, I'm seeing this a lot, Mario. Ales brewed with spruce tips? No, all well, Two Roads does one of these now, too. It's a, it's a partnership with a brewery out of... Um, evil Twin. New Hampshire. Wait, not the Evil Twin one? No. And it's it's got um, <clears throat> it's got some forest in it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I think it's just like, you know, beers are trying to get... I think, like, New England IPAs made it so it was really hoppy for a while. Not hoppy, but yeah. really fruity for a while like we talked about really sweet a lot of that stone fruit and i think this might be trying to get back to that return of the hoppiness and i think uh-huh. they're like oh shit we gotta add trees to it i mean it's interesting i mean this is it's got on the side here it says evergreen fresh resin candied fruit new growth yeah is that kind of the flavor hits we should be expecting or is that no yeah that's definitely, the, that's definitely the flavors um well, it actually it does put the the uh it does put the hop bill not the hop bill just the entire bill below it uh-huh uh, so we got two row malts, uh, English crystal malts. Not really familiar with malts. Um, just Chinook hops, so it's going to be pretty. It should be pretty hoppy. Mm-hmm. Um, they put the river water that they put it in. Maine foraged spruce tips. Ooh. And Saco River water. Mm. Okay. Well, ding. And Stephen King's blood. Mm, weird. <laughs> now we know. I'm, I am not. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What was that at the end whoa. there? So you drink it, and I'm not getting anything when, I, when it's in my mouth. That's, oh dear, as is to be expected. Um, but when when it finishes with like blueberry, I want to say it says candy. No, not blueberry. It's a blue, but it's. Do you know what it tastes like? It finishes like those. Do you remember those ninety nine cent candies you'd get? They'd be like that sugar covered orange gummies yeah it finishes like that for me the sugar court covered orange gummies i think that's this i think that's the spruce mm. 
No, I think the spruce is on the front of the palate. When you first taste it, you get a little bit of that, like, foresty Christmas tree almost like flavor. But to me, it finishes very sweet. It finishes sweet, yeah. And not, not sweet necessarily, like, hasn't actually sweet, mm. but, like, hasn't what you expect from a candy. I actually enjoy it. I'm, like, from an interesting perspective. Yeah. Not the taste wise, but, like, it's just interesting. Well, I think it tastes, yeah, it tastes interesting, but it doesn't taste bad. So it's not one of those things where I kind of want to dip into it. Um, I feel like I have to dip into it a few times to kind of get the get used to the taste. I actually don't want to get used to the taste. I kind of want to hang out with it. Yeah, no, exactly. And really, you know, this kind of makes me want to be a, a beer connoisseur. You know, you know no, what I mean? We're already beer connoisseurs. I'm not. <laughs> it makes me want to really explore the depth of this beer. And so the interesting thing is like uh, the local liquor store has you assholes in the east call them package stores um they had actually had several different beers from this company and they do a lot of collaborations they do one with kent falls collaborations was the word i was looking for before mm, really i said partnership oh yeah they did one with uh, kent falls and a few other ones with um some of the local breweries in connecticut so uh-huh. uh, you know maybe in a few weeks we'll try more from them because yeah. this is definitely a unique take yeah it's a nice can and it, the can it tastes like the can is that possible? I, uh, yeah, a lot no. of greens and blues on the can. It's See, got a very green nice, blue taste. Actually, the thing I like about the can is that it kind of reminds me of camping at twilight. Mm, yeah, like dark blues, and this kind of tastes like the kind of candies you have at twilight. I don't know. Tastes dark. But, I know this is. Me. Do you know what it fucking tastes like? Sour Patch Kids. Oh, I don't it think finishes so. like Sour Patch Do you Kids. Do so? Like the sweet part of Sour Patch yeah, Kids. I guess not like that first. Well, I mean, that could be the candied fruit that they're kind of talking Maybe. about there. Yeah. Why don't they just nice. say Sour it's Patch nice. Kids? Are Sour Patch Kids a mean thing? The Sour Patch Kids without the sour. Yeah, the Patch Kids. The Patch. Not Cabbage Patch Kids. Anyways, I think this might have been our longest beer conversation. Well, this is... Once again, once again, building into the fact that in five to ten weeks, we are just going to be a beer podcast. This is going to be the main, you know, yeah. the main listening point of the podcast. At the end of the, each podcast, we'll be like, we're talking about something else. When we look at our stats, it's going to be a lot of partial listens. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end we'll go like our ninety two was blah blah blah. But I mean we've had some we've had some good tasting beers, but I think this is by far the most interesting beer unique. That we've had so it's far. It's the most unique one. Yeah. yeah, it is very unique and it's um, a success. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think so. We'll see how it, how it continues. We have we have another one of these to drink later on. Um, same beer, but let's see if it can last through two pints. <laughs> so moving on to what we're actually here for, my number ninety eight, 1944's double indemnity. Written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, directed by Billy Wilder, um, who would go on to film such classics as Sunset Boulevard, The yeah. Lost Weekend, The Apartment, The Apartment. Not a movie I'm a big fan of. The, you apartment. Don't like the apartment. No, there's something a little too neat. You don't about like Jack it. Lemon? Oh no, I love Jack Lemon, but there's something a little too neat about The Apartment that I'm not the biggest fan of. Hmm. But once again, it's another movie I saw a while ago. Yeah, um, I love some like it hot in our Billy Wilder movie. Yep. Um, Love Jack Lemon and that, but the apartment is just there's just something too well put together about it. I do okay. enjoy. So, one of the main reasons that I put this on my list is one of the genres I absolutely adore. In addition to the horror and action films, you'll see is the film noir, mm-hmm. and this is absolutely the quintessential film noir, the perfectly crafted film noir, kind of the film that brought film noir to the forefront. You had Maltese Falcon come out a few years earlier in 1941. Mm-hmm. 
I think Devil Indemnity is the movie that hits all of the points you need to in the noir film. Well, it seems to be kind of the standard. Oh, exactly. It's, you it's know, the thing. It's it, it developed the checklist. Mm-hmm. It is everyone had it to is kind the of syllabus that is used by everyone else yeah, yeah, for yeah. the noir film. You have Barbara Stanwyck um, playing a pretty good femme fatale. I think she's better written than her performance necessarily is. Well, they put her in a lot of stationary positions, no, exactly. which I think kind of prevents her from um, being able to use her body at all to kind of sell any of the things that she's doing or saying. Her sexuality but, is contained, I suppose, all in her attitude. But see, I, I would face. agree with that, but I think Jean Heather as Lola does, does a lot better with, with that kind of same containment, even though she's playing yeah. a similar kind of, not in similar role, but but more of the innocent side of that same kind of framework. Well, I think she does a lot better with that. They give her more depth. I mean, Maybe, I, yes, sh- you should probably true. go into the, you know, a oh, exactly before, real quick. Before we're talking about it. Um, classic film. Basically, the plot of it is Fred McMurray uh, plays Walter Neff, an insurance salesman who's going to this household of the Dietrichsons to sell them um, automobile insurance because their coverage has lapsed. Mm-hmm. There he meets the wife, Phyllis, paid by, as we mentioned, Barbara Stanwyck, who in a, no few words convinces him that she wants her husband dead. She uses her sex appeal. Um, and Walter's basic boredom and a new in life mm-hmm. to convince him to go about a plot where they get her husband to sign accident insurance and then stage his death um, by falling off a train because of the fact that that grant them double indemnity, which is uh, it's a $50,000 um, insurance claim they have. Double indemnity allows them, in certain cases, certain types of accidents such to gain... Such as dying on a train. Such as dying on a train to gain $100,000. Um, and then from there, everything falls apart, as uh, Walter Neff's partner... Um, Burton Keyes played masterfully by oh, yeah, Richie Robinson. Excellent. Um, digs deeper and, and finds out the truth, and just everything from there kind of, in, kind of turns into a, a, a comedy of errors, um, purposely, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people would say that it kind of strokes to the film noir sense, and especially in the the code era of Hollywood, of um, people doing dastardly things needing to have their comeuppance. But I think, um, as Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert would say in his review, that uh, Billy Wilder's best films are sardonic comedies. And in this one, Phyllis and Walter play a bad joke on themselves. Um, and I think that's kind of kind of the best part of that, is, is I do find it to be almost comedic in, in their downfall. I mean, it's told very straight, Yeah. but um, it's just, just a series of bad luck and a series of just really bad choices and bad decisions that are, you know, um, humorously done to them that kind of lead them down that road. <clears throat> well, it, it's funny that they don't really know what they're up against. Oh, no, exactly. And that, um, you know, Barton Keyes is, um, I don't know, I don't want to say a savant at insurance, that's oh, a weird no, I'd, thing to I would, be. I'd absolutely say he is. Um, there's, he, there's, that, there's that great scene where he's talking oh, that, to the president great. Yeah, of yeah. the company. And the president of the company figures, you know, he, he tells this, he, he goes this good joke of like, he's, you think I'm in a big office, so I don't, means I don't know anything. Right. But I know that suicide. And, you know, Keys, in just a great scene where even like Robinson kind of flubs a few lines in that scene, but mm-hmm. just knocks out every reason 
of which he's done the research of suicide and how improbable it is that somebody would commit suicide by jumping out of a 15 mile per hour train. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got 10 volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And do you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's kind of speaks to the, the, the message of the movie, if this movie has a message, is that it's everything... There's a deeper level to everything. Oh, exactly. So Neff seems to be seeing everything on this very surface level. He's going to, you know, he's got this plan. Um, he's going to get Phyllis to go along with it. They're going to get the money. Phyllis is, you know, and Phyllis and him are gonna, you know, be together with a hundred thousand dollars forever. Um, but as and I, and I don't even think I don't even think to a certain extent the money's plays a big role. In no, that. no, he just wants her. He doesn't even really care about the money. He, he almost, wants her, and he and he wants a a subversion to the kind of boredom he's led. I mean, I mean, in that beginning dialogue and back and forth between them definitely shows that there's this kind of doldrum to their lives that they're trying to subvert and trying to, trying to go against. And well, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because if you watch it, I'm, I hadn't never seen this movie before. Um, so I'm watching it having watched however many film noirs that had got made since then. So I don't see when I'm watching, it, I'm seeing their dialogue, which is very punchy kind of one line, one line, one line, one line, one line. Um, I'm seeing that as kind of rote film noir um, script writing. But the way it's delivered, it's delivered with this different kind of energy mm. where it's not... And when you kind of read the context of, of when the movie got made, you realize that it's not rote film noir anything. It's inventing a new language for these people to speak in. I mean, oh, exactly. Raymond There's... Chandler wrote his... I suppose wrote his books in this thing, but again, in the same Roger Ebert review, I think that we're referencing, he kind of talks about the idea that the original novel um, had the original novel had a lot more to it, that and Raymond kind of Chandler excised, cut yeah. it out and made all the dialogue well, and, and, darker and, not, and, and Billy Wilder. Like Billy yeah. Wilder has the second most writing nominations of any screenwriter in history below hmm. Woody Allen. He has twelve. Um, you know. Not, both of these men, Raymond Chandler didn't write a lot of movies. I think he would go on to co-write Some no. Like It Hot with, with um, yeah. Billy Wilder. He died young from alcoholism. But but there's the punchiness to it, obviously. But well, it sounds, they're the ones that kind of like created that punchiness. Right, like, Maltese Falcon moves at a more deliberate pace. Yeah. This one is very – it's on fire. It's, it reminds me a lot of ways of a um, movie you mentioned previously in, in A Fish Called Wanda. And that yeah, you know, a lot yeah. of it comes a mile a minute. And everything is loaded. Like oh, every yeah. comment they make to each other is loaded with kind of an odd um, nefarious foreshadowing, but also sexuality, but also some kind of, you know, some danger. And even really simple that you think are kind of, um, yeah, like you know, the, nonsense the, the, there was things. The one line. Or just, stuff they're just tossing back and forth has has a real gravity to it. There's that one line that's great that, and I'm, I'm going to be slightly misquoting is like that. Who, who knew murder would taste like honeysuckle? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I noticed that one too. 
Like, there's just great lines in that. Like, and that sounds like a stupid thing to say, um, but in, but the, in the, time, the way he says it, and yeah, and in, the, in the, to- the context, you're kind of like, huh, that's that's dark. Yeah, that's a dark thing to say. Like, no, yeah, exactly, and especially during this time where, you know, we, we've come become used to the cliche of the femme fatale, but that was completely unknown at the time. I mean, people were wildly unhappy with this film. There was there was a really popular. Um, pop like singer at the time who spoke it out against the evils of the film um but betraying this woman using her sexuality for for just pure evil was, that's the was opposite like, of what they have in mexico what? with like the narco singers oh yeah exactly um but just you know so so this movie when it came out was just utterly <laughs> subversive in that way and so so like using that that line like murder tastes like honeysuckle just kind of subverts that expectations of what was in film already to say like this woman is using her sexuality is using her, her intelligence you know and, it, and that, that's a big part of it too I mean it's not just about using her sexuality but she she plays chess with all these people I mean Walter Neff just kind of figures out what's going on by by accident mm-hmm. the fact that she's you know starting to use um, Nino to kind of you know play the game as well and even in the end when uh, she doesn't shoot Walter that that second time yep. you're kind of thinking she's still playing the game as well um, well I think that's kind of the key to I don't want to like hang on to the Ebert review too much but he kind of says <clears throat> so at the beginning of the movie Walter obviously says what he did and he you know you don't know exactly you don't know the exact circumstances but we know that he killed somebody and we know that he's admitting it to his boss um, via the dictaphone um, so it kind of takes the mystery out of what's going to happen in terms of like the murder. Um, so the real kind of meat of the movie, as Roger Ebert perceives it, is what is the motivation of these characters? Mm-hmm. Like, and how do they feel about each other? Because you go from Neff, well, I, I love Neff that, is I love attracted to her instantaneously. Like when the second he well, opens a door and sees her like in her towel. He's instantly attracted to her and is hooked for the rest of the and movie. I love that quote from that same same review by Ebert. Um, you know, kind of talking about how like a lot of people I think believe that you know it's just two star-crossed lovers or, or two people manipulating each other, um, her manipulating him to do what they want. She wants, thinking that you know he's going to get her affection if he does this. But I I love that quote that he said in in Ebert's review where he said the husband's death, you know, where they they do the plot. The husband's death turns out to be their one night stand, mm. you know, that they're both just, you know, kind of using each other in a way. Um, they, you know, they, they want each other. Well, she wants the money. He wants power or, or, or just a break from the usual. I um, don't even know if she wants, does she, I don't think she I don't does think she wants us either because when he says, when he makes the point that he says like, we can't sue and she's like, Oh, we're going to sue. He, she has to know that they're not going to win that. Yeah. So she's going into it knowing that she's not going to... You well, assume she's going into it knowing she's not going to get any money out of this. You almost get the feeling like she just wants the control. Yeah. She's going to sue because she did this so she can have some control over her life. Um, and, you know, suing would be another element of that control. And so she's not so much in it for the money and she's not so much in it for Neff's. She doesn't really give a shit about Neff. She just kind of wants to be able to control him control a man where a man has always controlled her no exactly you know um when i think i think that's that's smart is you know like there's 
a lot of the arguments against the film when it first came out. I mean, it was very quickly claimed got seven Oscar nominations, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but was the fact that it was portraying a very strong woman protagonist. Oh. Well, not pro- I mean, she is a protagonist. Well, she's an an- she becomes an antagonist. But God the forbid. First, you know, in the first half of the film. This is America, people. Protagonist. Um, and she still, you know, she still kills Dietrichson. She still ruins death. So in the end, even though she doesn't get away, she definitely has that power, mm-hmm. which is great. She still has that power over both of them. She still set her own course. Even though she dies in the end, she willingly dies. When she misses that shot and hugs him, I think she's ex- half expecting her to kill him. Yeah, I'm not, it's 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 funny because I'm not sure the movie's very um coy about what either of them are in the end getting out of this. Exactly. And I think even up to the point where she dies, she's getting exactly what she wanted out of this. She's getting this experience out of it, you know, getting I guess get being able to get away with it and get $100,000 and to be able to play Neff and Nino off of each other would be a bonus, but the fact that she doesn't get that doesn't really seem to bother her. Yeah. I mean, and maybe they didn't, maybe because the genre of the, and, and the archetype of the femme fatale was so new that she didn't specifically know how to play it. So she is very calm and very satisfied seeming most of the time. Um, but let's assume that she did know what she was doing and she meant to play it satisfied. And so through the whole thing, she's just like, this is, uh, you can interpret that to mean that it is exactly what she wanted. You know, um, whether she got away with it or not, she's getting what she wanted. Yeah, she got that power in the end. She got that control over, over her own destiny for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, she was able to control the fates of three, two men, almost three. You know, if, if it wasn't for Walter calling off Nino, she would have been three. She, mm-hmm. she got that power. Yeah. Um, I think another, you know, so so that's that's a big reason why I love this movie. Like it, it establishes that strong woman character. It, it creates the film noir. But also, I'd say this is one of the first movies of its kind at the time that really brought over German expressionism, which I love too. Explain. Um, a lot of the scenes, you know, a lot of the scenes kind of shot by uh, John Seitz, um, who would then go on along with the editor uh, Dwayne Harrison to work with um, Billy Wilder and Lost Weekend and mm-hmm. Sunset Boulevard, have a lot of the sharp angles mm-hmm. and those those shadows. Everything's kind of framed in shadows. Yep. Some things kind of shots are kind of like half uncut and there's really long, sharp lines. Mm-hmm. And to me, a lot of ways, film noir really starts with Fritz Lang. Um, like some of the hallmarks of the history of film noir is Fritz Lang with uh, You Only Live Once. And in some ways, even though it's more of a kind of a German horror thriller, M mm-hmm. is another one. Yep. Um, and he, he brought a lot of those exp- German expressionism. Um, he brought a lot from we saw earlier in the 20s and cabinet dr caligari and expressing emotion mm. through the image and expressing yeah, yeah, yeah. emotion through through how you edit the image not really so much sound cues that come later we'll talk about that pretty soon yeah we'll talk about that a little bit um there's a lot of great scenes that are held in shadow that kind of are, are used shadows to kind of set a tone uh the the best scene in this movie to me yeah, it's just so perfectly framed. There's just so many great essays about this scene. Um, I, I didn't get to quote for one, but um, the scene where Phyllis says she's going to come over, mm-hmm. um, and then that's when Barton comes, Keys comes over, and says that he's kind of like he knows something's afoot, knows that there's there's a murder involved. He hasn't figured out it's Walter, but he knows Phyllis is involved. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so Phyllis comes to the door. She's wearing a knock. She hears the conversation inside. Barton goes to leave. And, you know, Walter opens the door. And the way the shot is framed, you have Barton held in light. It's kind of a long angle. Mm -hmm. Phyllis is behind the door. And she's in the shadow. The shadow representing that kind of very quintessential sort of the pure evil. And you have Walter kind of half-framed by... Half-framed in the shadow, half-framed in the light. As Barton keeps talking, he pushes the door back further. She gets further into the shadow. He gets further into the darkness, and that's that's great. You don't get that that often. You know, you didn't really get that yeah. in American cinema at the time. I mean, you have you have some of it, um, but I think this is the first really big, at least at least my first really big introduction to classic cinema. Um, and I saw Double Indemnity after I saw a lot of those those German expressionist films. I mean, I'd seen Cabinet of Dr. Calgary and Battleship Potemkin, which is a Russian movie, but a lot of those movies that use shot composition to kind of tell a narrative, mm-hmm. um, especially tell an emotive narrative. You, you didn't see that as well, much the, in American cinema. And like, yeah. This is a really good example of using well, those the, uh, contrasting and lines. And just, you know, to kind of piggyback on that, just like a thought, like the idea to um, use the image to develop character. Like, uh, I think that's really interesting and key too. And they kind of, you know, you could point to something like this and like Citizen Kane, which came out, you know, a couple of years later, um, kind of did the same. A lot of Americans, I think back then were kind of seeing all those movies and then saying like, Oh, I could do that. Yeah. I just need to, I just, you know, I just get a bunch of money and get someone that knows how to shoot this. And then I can, build character by just showing them stuff and they mm. don't have to have someone you know giving an expositional monologue like every single second of this movie what's the thing i love too is like another another great aspect of that too is early on in the film when you're first introduced to walter especially when he's at the insurance company yep. every establishing shot of him coming into the office is told from a long frame a long frame nothing's really kind of balanced in the frame there's i think one of the the earliest scenes you know disregarding the media res scene um, where he goes to kind of like talk to the dictaphone. He walks in and the camera's literally placed in the middle of the first floor. Never zoomed in and just kind of slowly pans, follows him, but really distant. You get that a lot. Has tension builds. Every time he comes in, the camera kind of gets closer and closer and closer. Like gives it that sense of, of the world closing in around him. Well, you get a lot of this. You get a lot of those shots too when he enters um, rooms that are kind of from the middle of the room, but like at desk level, mm. and they're all they do all seem to be a little bit off kilter. And you'll get some weird stuff in, like when he walks into his office that one time, um, and there's someone else in the office with him, and that shot's a little off kilter and it's a little too low, and like that guy is just kind of sitting right next to the door, and you're just kind of like, oh, what's you know. What's this guy? But I think it's this kind of suggestion that, you know, where there was no one in his office for a long time, the first couple of times you see him, there's no one in his office, and now all of a sudden there's somebody there. Yeah. Like, it's the sense that, like, he's being watched, or, like, you know, the stakes are kind of been raised a little bit. Um, I don't know enough about the history of film to kind of dive into, like, how well American auteurs were doing that stuff at the time. Yeah, and um, obviously... But I get the obviously, that it was fairly Obviously, for emails about this, I'm going to get gonna get a dozen to 20 films i haven't heard of but this is this is definitely one of the first movies um that kind of like struck that chord mm-hmm. with with um with the viewers at least i mean the, the fact of, of how critically acclaimed it was that it was a box office success you know making five times its budget um the fact that it did earn the seven oscar nominations it didn't win anything but 
but and it, and it set off an entire genre of film. I mean, you did have yeah. those movies beforehand, but then everything followed. This well, they're all hitting. They're where, all hitting all. To where now you watch Dumble and Demony, and you're like, oh, the Naked Gun ripped this off because like it is. You know, you could watch, <laughs> you could watch every stroke of this movie, and then watch Naked Gun and think it's the same fucking movie. Well, that's. I mean, that's a really interesting thing because if you just if you take the same movie and put it in a slightly different context, every conversation that Neff has with Phyllis is hilarious. But in the context that it is, it's kind of concert, like disconcerting and, you know, intriguing mm. more so than, you know, laugh out loud funny. And, and I think and I think that's a big part of it, too. I, I, um, I think Billy Wilder was, was intelligent with how he even cast the film. Uh, you had Edward G. Robinson, you know, beforehand playing these really dark, maniacal kind of gangster types yeah, you have Bill yeah. Caesar and then like even later on in Key Largo he'd play that same character and here he's he plays a really good he plays an absolutely pure hearted character I mean they even make you know Walter makes the line of despite all his pretenses I mean obviously paraphrasing despite all his pretenses he has a big heart yeah um, and Walt you know Fred McMurray would be known to go on to play like, the absent-minded professor he'd play the shaggy dog yeah he'll play these Disney roles now reserved for fucking tim allen <laughs> and, oh no they should remake double indemnity with tim allen well jesus they should remake man underneath a train with tim allen um but he played these very genial characters and you know i think this and his character in the apart the apartment uh-huh. are the only two examples of where he really played the heel yeah i think that was a big deal at the time too because yeah. there was a um if i remember correctly they offered this movie to a lot of different actors and, um, and actresses, and they didn't want to do it. Hmm. They thought it was too dark. Yeah. And um, I think they just kind of, I think he was... And that was a big criticism. The criticism of the movie was like, there, there's visible shots of blood after Walter gets shot. You know, it's it, it's fairly gory for its time. Mm-hmm. He, cold in cold blood, strangles a man and shoots a woman. And, and even though she's by that point evil, he just shoots yeah. her with, with disregard after she's expressed her love to him. You know, so this is a very amoral film for its time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of those people who had been offered those roles just didn't want to have association with it. And yeah. a lot of those negative reviews and, and the, the outcry against the movie was the fact that it was considered really amoral. Um, oh, man. <laughs> we're, we're getting back to those times soon, don't worry. Yeah. Oh. Donald Trump's going to pull all the security clearance from the intelligence people, and then he's going right after Hollywood. We'll be all we'll have to watch is double indemnity. Well, that's going next too. He didn't understand it. So. <laughs> he he doesn't actually know how to spell indemnity, so he's he's pretty mad about that. But uh, the biggest, like I said, the biggest reason it's on my list is is the fact that it opened up doors. Yep. You know, it it creates it it basically perfects the genre of film noir, but also it it allows a lot of European style filmmaking. And um, in using the framing of the shot, in using lighting, and using off kilter, I don't want necessarily Dutch angles because they don't really use a lot of those Dutch angles, but using off kilter framing in order to add to the emotion. And I think that that is then seen later on in, in future films, and especially the film we're going to talk about next. You know, it opens up that doorway to using sound, using mm-hmm. the visuals in order to create the emotion of the film. Do you find yourself attracted to the original, like the original film, like the kind of the film that 
like as a, so as a musician, I kind of have this conversation a lot about bands where this band just sounds exactly like this other band that came out 30 years ago. So I'm just going to listen to this band. Like the, I'm just going to listen to the older band. Why would I listen to this band when I can just listen to this band? Do you find yourself attracted? I mean, um, film is different think, because people are going to add stuff to it. But I think I was, I think I was naturally. I think like that that that's an example in other movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, other movies are going to be on this list later where I was drawn to it because it did it first, mm-hmm. and because it was that that kind of like moment that that turn. But I I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I think I think this is the case of of a masterful filmmaker knowing how to hit his marks, knowing how to tell his story, and I don't think there's been a film no more that, that strikes yeah. as, as smart. I mean, he, Billy Wilder even shot a scene where he, he filmed he filmed it. He changed the ending. The, the original ending was Neff in the gas chamber. That's right. Yeah, and yeah, he realized, that. no, the best way to end it is just Neff just sitting this. there. You don't know if he's dying already, and you know he says, I love you, and then and I love you too. lighting the cigarette. Yeah, lighting the cigarette. You know, yeah. kind of that turn of, that turn of power. You know, and I, I think... I don't think it's the fact that it was the first one. I think it's just the best one. Right, but is there something in um, your recognition of like, ah, yes, this is this is doing all the things. I've seen all these other film noirs, and it all came from this that kind of, you know, that turns in your head a little bit. That makes you kind of, you know, that it sticks out. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you, you look you look for those, those PowerPoint examples, those, those pinpoint examples of, and it hits every single one of those points but then you realize that you're watching and it does all those points much better than anything that yep. followed yeah and so everything kind of feels i mean a lot of noirs that follow are great but they they feel like imitations mm-hmm. after seeing the original yeah so that's my number 98 uh we're gonna go up with uh tom's number 98 right after the break All right, that was Mario's 98. My 98 is the 1994 film, Clean Shaven, directed by Loge Kerrigan. Not Lodge, as I just learned yeah. a second ago. Well, I, I uh, watched a YouTube interview, and the guy pronounced it Lode. Uh, it stars Peter Green in a pre-Pulp Fiction role. As also a pre-The Mask role. Pre-The Mask role, yeah. Um, as Peter Winter, he is a schizophrenic who has... Um, recently been let out of uh, the hospital. Um, it stars whoever Megan Owen is as his mother, Jennifer McDonald as his daughter, Molly Castello as the woman who has adopted his daughter, and Robert Albert as a detective. Who the reason, the, no, these people don't really go on to do anything of note no it's a, i mean i think peter green's the one person who kind of emerges from this as and even then somebody to somebody to by notice. 1995 he's starring as the backup mercenary in under siege Two dark Territory, yeah he kind so. of pops up into movies in movies um now and then but he's great in this i actually actually after i saw this i i looked up to see i was convinced he had killed himself and it turned out that was the villain from dumb and dumber I got mixed up. With oh yeah, I actually kind of had that same yeah. thought. Not that you know. Because I lo- I loved him in this. He's great in this. Oh, he's I fantastic. Like, I was like, oh man, he's dead. And I looked it up as he wasn't. <clears throat> so that's good job, Peter Green. Come a, back. It's a positive. Take over all the roles that Zachary Levi gets. <laughs> we're taking that out. Nope. <laughs> no, we're taking that in. Peter Green is Shazam. We're gonna start uh, that right now. Damn it. 
if right. they can re- if they reshoot Solo, they can <laughs> they can reshoot fucking Shazam. No, I think Solo is an interesting thing. Is like you know, give Peter Green some of these Woody Harrelson characters. I I don't think the world would be sad to see a little a little less Woody Harrelson every once in a while. I mean, Woody Harrelson's great, but I would like to see more Peter, Peter Green after seeing good, this. Yeah. Um, so, just as a quick yeah, a quick synopsis of the of the plot, and then I'll I'll talk about why it's on my list. Um, Peter Winter um, is has recently been released from a hospital, um, an insane asylum. Um, he's schizophrenic. He believes that he has radio transistors and transmitters in his head and in his fingernails. Um, That's such a, a disturbing scene of those. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of weird body horror stuff in this that kind of goes a step further in its casualness than um, I think a lot of other movies would do. Yeah, it doesn't relish in it. No, it just it kind of does it. Um, he's trying to find his daughter who has been adopted. Um, his mother is, uh, or his wife is dead. The girl's uh, Nicole... Her mother is dead. Um, she's been adopted by this woman, Melinda. Um, after the grandmother. Uh, after Mrs. the grandmother Winter put her up for adoption because she couldn't take care of her. Um, I mean, as, as for plot, there is uh, there is a, a 1A plot where he may have killed a girl. And uh, there's a detective who's kind of following his footsteps, kind of trying to trace his path to see if he killed the girl. I mean... Not to spoil it, because it doesn't really make any difference. You're kind of left not knowing whether he killed the girl. Um, I, I, don't I don't think, think he did I don't either. Think he did, yeah, I, um, I think it makes a, a better punch in the end if he did it, and I'll talk about that later. Yeah, um, but it's you know through the movie you're kind of not you don't know. It seems like he may have you know he, there's some questionable things, and he seems like definitely the kind of person who may do something like that because he's not um, altogether there. Um, so this movie is on my list for two two reasons. Um, I mean, uh, it's a great movie, but two very specific personal reasons. Um, I went through a Criterion Collection addiction in my mid twenties. Got pretty bad. I was spending a lot of money I didn't have. I went, I went through that in early college as yeah. well. It was probably at the same, roughly about the same time. I yeah. bet. I definitely have a copy of, of Naked Lunch that I don't even know what there to you do go. with. I had a copy of a lot of movies I didn't know what to do with, and I sold them all for a lot of money back in the day. Even Armageddon? The Armageddon? I did not have the Armageddon DVD. Um, but this was one. This was this is a Criterion film. It was one of the movies that I bought kind of sight unseen. Um, just went into Cutler's one day, which was you know the record store in New Haven that I've already mentioned here. That was the only... Near the Educated Burger. Near the Educated Burger. That was one of the only places that you could actually go buy a Criterion movie at the time. And they used to have, like, everything. The first Criterion movie uh, I bought was Throne of Blood, which we'll talk about later. Uh, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. And uh, I just went totally bananas on Criterion movies. Um, But this is one of the ones that stuck. That I watched and I wasn't just kind of confused. And I wasn't just kind of like, you know, that was really boring. Or, you know, I didn't really think that movie would so have what were some So what, what were some ones you had seen that, that really didn't stick with you, just to give... Well, some of the Bunuel stuff, like mm. Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Um, you know, um, there was some like early Altman stuff, like Three Sisters. I got really into the idea of Three Sisters for a while uh, with Sissy Spacek and mm. Shelley Duvall. Yeah. 
and that one didn't stick because I'm, I'm not like I'm, I'm not like an Altman guy. But Shortcuts was another one because it had a great package. It came with a book oh, that, that shortcut, had the Raymond Carver's stories in it. I was like, I don't like these stories, and I don't like this movie. The Shortcuts cover, the Shortcuts Criterion's great. Unfortunately, the movie within is short. Right. Um, but I kind of I had two for two in dissing Altman. I had every single Kurosawa movie, um, and then I went. Not so a f- bad decision. No, it was a good decision. Um, and I even went so far as to get the Truffaut Antoine Donnell box set of all the movies that he was in, um, or that featured that character. Um, I have the Fifty Years of Janice film box set that comes in like a you know twenty pound box mm-hmm. with a coffee table book and fifty DVDs. It's like a really treasured possession of mine. But I just I went apeshit. Um, this movie stuck with me for. One very specific reason, aside from the fact that it's a good movie and it's, you know, responded to it. I uh, was never been a Kevin Smith guy, but I've always thought, I, I, from like 18 to a certain time, I really wanted to make a movie. Um, and I thought that Clerks was a good model for what you could do with no money and an idea that's made like on thirty thousand dollars i think it was yeah less just credit cards six maxed out credit cards um i think clerks is a shit movie i've always hated clerks i've never liked really anything that kevin smith has ever done i encountered this movie in 2006 but instantly when i saw it i said this is the movie that i would make if i had the talent and the wherewithal this is the movie that I would make. And it's made on $70,000 over this it's period of two, two years. years that he it had took s- two years because he kept running out of money and had to scour for funds. Right, but funds. It's, it's, it is um, a DIY kind of masterpiece that does everything it does through performance. Some pretty good camera work. Um, you know, he makes some interesting choices in terms of, of, of how he shoots this stuff that kind of... Um, helps push the schizophrenia thing along. He shoots from odd angles. He shoots very close up a lot of times, so it's a very visceral thing. But the thing that I think we want to get to a lot is um, the sound design. So, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, the way you can convey stuff is, and especially schizophrenia, where a lot of these, like, white noise that we kind of hear every day would be heightened to a pain um, is through sound design. And this movie is kind of a miracle of sound design. Yeah, and I, actually going back to your point of the cinematography, I mean, yeah, the cinematography by um, Theodano Mancini, I'm going to say that name wrong, is, is, isn't doing a lot because they didn't have the budget for it, but like in the minimalist aspects of it, I think I think still hit. Right, but absolutely. sound design is definitely a, a big part of it. But just to, to talk about the, the cinematography, um, you know, a big part of it is is those those rundown using just very simple establishing shots of rundown areas they ran into, but the way it's then interspliced. I think the sound design and the film editing play a major yeah, role. Yeah, the film in, editing is really kind of in shaping this. Um, but you know, kind of interspicing very very simple establishing shots of rundown areas, and then that continuous cutting of the uh, the showing of the power lines, which kind of oh, interplay. Yeah. Um, against that kind of blue natural background, the power lines being the transmitters that are kind of in his head and in his fingernails. And there was there, that, that Dennis Lime writes a, writes a really good yeah. essay um, from Inside Man. He's, he's a village voice editor. He wrote kind of like the Criterion video essay. And he yeah. says, 
you know, we see the rundown rural landscape through the filters of Peter's distress. Power lines repeatedly bisect the screen, flickering black uh, bands racing against endless blue sky, and they seem from our paranoid viewpoint to be strangling the world. And that's 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 a smart thing. And that's a kind of a part yeah. of what you're saying is is in low budget when you have so few money and you have so little money. You've got to make do with like, you don't have to pay anybody to shoot power lines. No, exactly. But I think I mean just to, to go off of that, because I thought I you know, I read that essay and I thought it was really interesting too, and I always got the impression that the power lines didn't strangle the world as much as they were kind of infiltrating his head. Oh, you know what right, I mean? Right. That it was a kind of well, yeah, it was a kind of internal connection. He was always hooked up to something. And that's why when you see, you know, like the schizophrenia is very technological as opposed to like a religious experience. Um, when you see or the, the power- expression of the schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, when you see the power lines, it heightens that transmitter sound that he believes in his, is in his skull and in his fingernails. And so it kind of plays into that something very simple in the world magnifying his, his illness. Well, I just think I would point to something like you know, as an example of how effective this movie is in terms of uh, illustrating someone with schizophrenia and what makes it kind of something that, you know, if you're a new, if you're a burgeoning filmmaker or someone who thinks they want to be a filmmaker and you find kind of inspiring is like when after he gets out of the hospital and after he's knocked out all his windows and what have you, he sits down at that place and has three coffees. Oh, yeah, those, the, that. And he, you know, he opens up the, the sugar and, you know, you see the above view of the three coffees and the, you know, the milk is swirling and you're just kind of like, what kind of guy needs three coffees? And, and it just he, puts it in your head like this guy's obviously something's very off here. And the fact that he has like a very methodical way of pouring the sugars, but his hands are shaking and yeah. he's missing the sugar and but he I mean, has to stir in each way. And, it's, and that's a, you know thousand dollar at most shot right there yep and it says a, a lot about what you're what you're going to expect in the film and i find, I find the, those things very inspiring and again i'm over i'm very over my need to make a movie hmm. but i'm not over my love of watching people that's the sound there it is of watching people who inspired people figure out a way to do what they want to do against whatever odds that whoever is going to put up against them. You know, like you said, it took him two years of off and on, like having money and not having money to shoot this movie. Um, I mean, in a way, I mean, I know um, that essay kind of mentions that this is one of the best depictions of schizophrenia on film. Yeah. But when he was make, when Loge Kerrigan's making this, he can't be thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the best example of schizophrenia on film. He's just trying to make his movie. And he's, he's got to try to make a movie that, that says something right. about it in however way he can. And, and the sound editing plays a key role in the fact that that is a, an effective, cheaper way of doing it. But the fact that he undercuts everything throughout that film with that sound design you know, drives even the viewer to like the point of madness. The fact that it's oh, yeah. unrelenting. Even in the scenes where um, you know Peter's not not present, and you get uh, McNally, you know just just even that that rhythm to where McNally's just hitting the steering wheel, you know that's that's in a sense like a like a sense of madness, or even yeah. like the really close, dingy shots when the um, bar is robbed, you know that that kind of adds to this feeling of like otherworldliness, or just like this this constant tension, this constant, or even when he's in ad- his mother's house and the shots we see of his mother when she's talking is just her mouth mm-hmm. it's like a an awkward close-up of just her mouth kind of signifying how he is 
how he is hearing her, what it means to him, like how, you know, claustrophobic her constant harping on him to make something of himself must feel to him who has no choice. Like, this is just what his life is like. There's nothing he can do about this. Yeah, and even, like, even... You know, setting like a lot of people will, will talk about the um, the fingernail scene. The fingernail scene, you know, a, a good scene of body horror, but not necessary. I, I, to me, I mean, equally kind of violent scene is when he's just trying to shave himself and clean himself. Yeah. I mean, he has the part where he's trying to like dig out the transmitter for a second. That's fine, a little grotesque, but then just shaving himself and his inability to shave himself and just constantly cutting himself and shaving his chest and cutting his chest mm-hmm. and. It's not too graphic, but just it's a lingeringness. And I think the, I think the difference between those two, you know, moments of of you know, we'll just call them body, body horror for the sake of calling them something, is that that scene because it kind of keeps cutting from one example of 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 you know pain to another is almost more jarring than the finger the fingernail scene. While it's gross in its concept is actually kind of, I find it kind of meditative. It's cathartic in a way. Because it's just, the the white noise is going the whole time and you're just kind of, you're just kind of used to it by now. He doesn't scream out. He doesn't make any reaction. He just like has this really deep stare while he does the thing that he needs to do or that he thinks he needs to do to keep whoever is listening to him from listening. And it's even followed up by like when he then from there, you know, finds his daughter and it's kind of presented with like the first scene where Peter is still clearly dealing with the issues he's dealing with, but it's the first scene with him acting like a normal human being. But even when he's acting like a normal human being, the normal conversation he's having with his daughter is it's about the transmitters. No, exactly, his head. exactly. But which leads up to like the unbelievably heartbreaking scene at the end, where she's on the radio in her adopted mother's boat because her adopted mother's a fisher, a fisherman, and uh, and she's calling for her dad, mm. and like you know, thinking he's established in her, like the the idea that someone's listening to her if she can get on the radio someone will be listening to her maybe her dad if her dad has a transmitter in his head and his maybe fingernails he maybe he can hear yeah. her um and it, i mean he's doing this with nothing he's just he's just he's doing it with like the sweat on his back and whatever money he can find and it's just it's just amazing and i'm always in awe of it every time i mean i've seen it you know four or five times now and it's just you know, it gets me every single time. Like what he does with, and it's a good movie. It's a good movie without like the history behind it. But it moves me that much more to think about how this thoroughly excellent movie got made. And I think it's unfortunate that you know everyone else in this movie kind of didn't didn't go on to do much else. Like there, there's a lot of signs of talent. Well, that's like, kind of the story with a lot, a lot of independent film, like yeah. from this era. You know what I mean? It's just a bunch of people getting together to make something. And then who knows where it goes? Well, yeah, and like Loge, like Loge Kerrigan's now like one of the showrunners on the Girlfriend Experience for Steven Soderbergh, and that's kind of unfortunate. The the one person who's actually gone on to do something mm-hmm. is um one of the sound editors and, and editor like film editors of the film, uh, Jay Robin uh, Robinowitz. Uh-huh. He went on 
and I think you'll appreciate this, to uh, be the editor of Tree of Life, oh. The Fountain, and Rec Room for a Dream. Wow. So I think that kind of speaks to how much, if anything, that strikes from this film, the sound editing and, and yeah. some of the film editing and the fact that that, you know, everyone else kind of got forgotten to the wayside, unfortunately, because like Even Peter this Green's movie. Great. I mean, but who talks yeah, about no, this no, movie wait. anymore? Honestly, when this popped up, I'd never seen this movie before. When it showed up on your list, I'd, you know, I'm not going to deny it. I hadn't even heard of it. Sure. Well, um, you I'd heard of Loge Kerrigan because I'd heard of, um, I'd seen long ago Keen. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I wasn't the biggest fan of Keen. But but I'd seen it, um, but I hadn't heard of Clean Shaven. Yeah. Um, well, I hadn't heard. I mean, until it came out on Criterion, I didn't know it existed. Yeah. I just but, saw it on the shelf, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll buy that." That shows you that the fact that like when you have so few resources, but you're able to put together people who know what they're doing, you're gonna fucking create something. Well, that kind of you know does that speak at all to the idea that we were kind of bringing in you know the opening of the show during the A block during the A block where you know. Given the chance, someone with talent at this can become really talented. No, no, that's exactly. Are we kind of pigeon as a as an industry? Would Loge, Kerrigan, mo- would Loge Kerrigan have done the fourth, the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie now that James Gunn's been fired? Oh, that's a, I, that's a, <laughs> we can have a different James Gunn conversation. <laughs> um, but you know, given the talent, you know, where are these people going to come from? Where is so you know, I don't know if that if what's his name Jay Rabinowitz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Evidence. I don't know if he's on the level of like a Thelmish, uh, like, um, Schoonmaker, but like, and before where this, are those like, people, but where are those, you know, you used to know the names of editors. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like of people that edited movies, you used to know like, oh, this person edited it. It's you know, probably going to be good. You know, all those other, but who, you know, where is that coming from now? Like people would just kind of say like, well, this person made, directed this movie. It's like, I don't know who that person is. What else did they do? Oh, they did this really... They did a Nike commercial. They did a couple... A pilot for a TV show. Listen, their name's Mick G. doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think that's... I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I do want to get back to... Um, you, know, you know, talking about how the film is constructed. We could, we could say... In, in terms of the construction of the film, it's, it's masterful. Mm. I, I mean, it's it's... Uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable watch. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even when he's not cutting off his fingernail, it's, no, it's hard think, to sit there. I, and I watch. don't even think that that's that bad of a problem. I think it's just the sound. The sound is is meant to convey the schizophrenia he feels. It's all the sound design, all of the film editing, like the discordant shots. Um, and something that that kind of got to me was the shot where he's in the library. Oh and yeah. And it's just not the shot where he's hitting his head, but the shot where it cuts to above and he's flipping through. 30 different texts but everything's a mess and mm-hmm. and for anything that you know all, there there was a recent article um talking about interstellar not 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 a good movie in my opinion but interstellar about how they had to reshoot what they felt a black hole actually looked like because they needed symmetry in the filmmaking mm-hmm. that that a black hole isn't has symmetrical but they needed to you know to create take artistic liberties to, to give symmetry and that which is ridiculous. I mean, you're, he's he's giving me that. Tom's giving me that squinty face again. Yeah, um, I'm more giving it to Christopher Nolan, but <laughs> but like that scene's unsettling in how much it lacks symmetry. And this film lacks a lot of symmetry, and that's on purpose. Yeah, you know, there is like a- when you have so little to do, have so little to work with. I should say, like like that's when you use those moments. Is is just the lack of symmetry. It's just the sound. 
Well, I mean, in, in, under the circumstances, you have to convey mood and you have to convey atmosphere because you don't have anything else to go on. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of script here. There's not a lot of people saying. But I, that's why. That's, that's the one thing I wanted to get to right. I, in okay. terms of the story. Uh-huh. Um, you, you know, the major subplot following the thread is is whether or not he's a child murderer. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not there, there's an early scene where he sees that girl with the soccer ball, and it cuts away to the sound of the, the girl screaming and you know, the sound of what sounds like a baseball bat. And later on when they're doing the autopsy of the girl, it says, it talks about blunt force trauma and it puts you has the viewer in the position that from early stage that he did commit this murder. Well, that you also have to be concerned for his daughter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, go, going off of that same article, that same article I talked from Dust Lim, and it's, he said, if Kerrigan's films are about any one thing, it's not so much about the mental stability not so much uh, mental instability has the precariousness of sanity in a pitiless, brutalizing modern world. Yeah. And I think, I think a big argument can be made there, and I don't know how you feel about this in terms of the plot, but I, I think that's... I think Kerrigan's kind of making a purposeful statement against the viewer there mm-hmm. um, in the sense that there is no evidence in that opening scene that, that this guy did anything that that even that girl you see is is the victim yep you know in the very end of the movie mcnally opens up the bag that that uh winter has been carrying around and it's just a pile of dirty clothes yeah yeah. um and as you sit there at that ending after he shoots after mcnally just shoots this guy not not not, he shoots him somewhere in self-defense because winter grabs a gun but definitely puts himself in a position where he he kills winter he provokes winter yeah um and the entire film has been in framing on such a way where you think winter committed this murder. But then when you kind of sit back and find out he most likely did not, or very likely did not, mm-hmm. it kind of like puts the blame back on you. And at least in my viewing and the fact that you keep hearing discordant sound, you keep hearing discordant noise that has no basis in reality. And it subverts that expectation for me. And that opens with this girl screaming and it sound like she's being hit when you realize that, no, that's winter's experience. That winter's hearing these things. Yeah, he constantly hears those things. And you think that's? Do you think? Yeah, that, I mean, that is kind of like a, a speaking to the viewer and their expectations. Oh yeah, I had a, a a similar sense that I mean, the movie in reality is asking is kind of about perception. It's yeah, kind of asking you as a viewer to kind of um, alter your perception of this person by the end of the movie. Whereas every adult in the movie and every other character in the movie has their own perception of who Peter is and what he's capable of. And even every other character has their own fucked upness. Like, like McNally's sexual pursuit of, of, um, of Melinda. Well, there's like awkward. There's an emasculation quality to him as well. Well, the scene where he's unable to, he doesn't doesn't protect the bar when the bar gets robbed. Like what's an intelligent decision, but it's definitely, you know, intelligent decision not to pull out his gun. But it's an intelligent but, decision that leads to, you could say directly leads to Peter getting killed because from the next couple of scenes afterwards, he has his gun out. Mm-hmm. Like he takes, you know, when he's driving around right before he encounters Peter, he has no reason to pull his gun out. But his, he's driving with his gun, like, on the steering wheel ready or to Or even forms, it. like, that protective, like, I'm a man thing with the librarian. Right, yeah, exactly. Um and his own perception of, of, you get the impression that Kerrigan's trying to establish that um, McNally is perceiving an attraction from the librarian, 
yeah. to him. Um, and you're not exactly sure if that's... By the end of the movie, you're not exactly sure if that's the case. And he's well, yeah, not really sure if that's the case either. But I 100%... Because everything's a subversion in this movie. No, right. Nothing is as it, it seems. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting to juxtapose everyone else's perception of Peter with his daughter's perception of him in that she doesn't see all that afraid of him. Hmm. She doesn't see him as dangerous. She clearly, after having met him, regardless of the fact that he said we have radio transmitters in her he- our heads and our fingernails, um, she wants to have some kind of a relationship um, with this guy. Um, so the one person that everyone thinks that she should, that should really be afraid of him is not afraid of him at all. And what she's going to end up being afraid of conceivably is that outside world that didn't understand him. Well, and that, that's, that's, that's that exactly instead of understanding him decided to kill him. I mean, Roger Ebert, like in his review had, had that, that really great quote where he said, you know, McCarrigan doesn't see Peter from the outside as a danger or a threat. Uh, but from the inside, it's like a suffering man. Um, who still retains those instincts that made us human, including like the love for our children. And, you know, that society cannot see him with that same empathy is perhaps inevitable. Well, that's, I mean, and that's an interesting quote from the standpoint that, um, you know, his own mother doesn't even seem to notice that he's suffering. Oh yeah. She sees him as more of a burden. There's that, there's that, I love that scene where she's, you know, it's, 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 it's a gross scene where she's cutting the fish and it keeps coming to the fish heads. And he says, he's like, I'm going to pay you. Is that all right? Yeah. And he's reaching out to her in that yeah, scene. Yeah. He's like, and he's, I can still be responsible somehow. And he's like, I'm you're right. It's all on you. me. It's on me. To I got to do there. this. Yeah. And he's like, is that all right? And she just fucking throws him to the trash. Well, and she says to him, like, you know, she tries to charge him rent to stay in the room and she asks yeah, him not to he make seems that like much a border. noise. He seems like a border at a boarding And house. then right after that he just curls up into a ball on on a bed with no sheets. Yeah. And it's just and you kind of you as the viewer while you think that he may be a child murderer are still kind of suff- because of the way he shoots it are still suffering there with him and you just want him, her to recognize like when she says oh it's not healthy for someone to stay in side all day she's like no he just should stay inside all day like he shouldn't be going out yeah like i don't know where i'm happy that he's out of the stone room that he's in when like they we first meet him like the first time we see him is locked in a stone cell you know with noises just screaming in his head um but he definitely shouldn't be out driving around looking for anybody or interacting with anybody yeah, especially when everything he sees reminds him of his daughter, or every time he sees himself, he's just realized how broken he himself is, and to the fact that he covers up every mirror he sees with, you know, newspaper clippings. Yeah. I don't know. It's a very once again that speaks that speaks to like the fact of how little they had to work with. You know, they had seventy thousand dollars, but they were able to say all these things. You know. They, they did a lot of doubling with, with like looking at himself in the mirror and like there's two different perspectives of him in the mirror. Or, you know, he keeps seeing young brunette women or young brunette girls who, who look like his daughter, mm-hmm. you know, just using, using very cheap doubling, using the sound design, using the film editing, just to create this craft, this story that, that is just a tale about a schizophrenic man who's just, buried underneath the, an uncaring society. Well, and think about the idea of doubling and the picture that he carries around of his daughter is ripped in half. Yeah, exactly. It's too And different. he keeps... And every time he tries to merge it together, there's a nascent white noise scream sound that comes from mm-hmm. somewhere um, or some kind of 
uh, some kind of child's voice in whatever manifestation it is. If it's a scream or a laugh or something. Um, oh, that's, that, he oh that's yeah, exactly that scene also where he's looking at the library books. Yeah. He sees the, the kids laughing, and as he's turning the pages, it then cuts just to piercing cries. When I go, I mean, in the library scene, I think the whole library scene, um, from when he's hitting his head to, you know, when he's the next day when he's looking, I, th- I guess it's the next day when he's looking at all the books on the yeah, table. Yeah, it's the next day. It's really interesting because you get the impression that Kerrigan's trying to show that there is a whole outside world. You know, he's like a science, mathematics, sports, whatever, art. That there's a whole world outside of his perception, Peter's perception, but Peter can't access any of that stuff. He can only access what's in his head. And he doesn't. He, you know, when he's looking at all the books on the table, and they're all spread out. He's just constantly touching books. He doesn't stop really to look at anything until he happens across like the one picture of, like that picture of his daughter, which I guess is an announcement in some kind of publication. Like this girl was adopted mm. by such such. I don't know why that would be a publication, but whatever. Um, you know, he's. It's another way that he shows how locked up in his head this guy is. That he can't he can't look at this stuff. And he's hitting his head against all these magazines and periodicals that are supposed to be his window into a world outside of himself and he just can't do it. Which is then followed up by that scene where he goes to the adoption agency, which is trying to show too that he has some grasp still with the real world where he, he you know, he asks to to find out where his daughter's gone, and she says she can't give that inf- can't give that information. Um, and it shows the clock, and the clock starts ticking slower and slower. And he sees the man with the gun, and he backs out. Yep. And it shows that there's still some touch with the real world. That he's still a human being. He's not mm-hmm. completely broken, you know. And just like putting those scenes together, putting that scene in the fact that he is a broken man, but he's not so broken that he doesn't have a place to exist. Is is I think smart i think i think just just putting those two scenes next to each other yeah being able to um reestablish his humanity every once in a while i think is key mm-hmm. so he's not a monster and he's not well, yeah, uh, he's not a cliche he's a character and you know so because he's a character he's a human yeah because he's in the hands being. in the hands of a less competent director in hands of a director trying to make you know a nauseous point um you know he's He's not a monster. He's he's just somebody who's sick. Mm. You know, like like the question. The, the end of the film definitely leans to the, towards the point he was in the murderer. It's just it's it's a completely disattached point, a disattached case. Um, we want to perceive him as as a murderer. Yeah, cause, because because it makes even, us feel it's it's easier for like the viewer. It justifies it's easier for the society to pigeonhole him as as a murderer. It justifies the the library patients. Um, Fear of him. Fear of him when they're kind of just like turning away from him as he's banging his head trying to get the voices out. You know, justify if he is this monster, if he isn't just a human who has very human characteristics, very human wishes, if he is just a child murderer, then then it justifies our points. And in the end, Kerrigan says, no, you know, I, I, at least for me, at least for me. And no, he's still, it's still up in the air. At least it says, no, he was just a person he's who, a person who uh, needed help yeah so when that lot when the librarian comes the next day and she finds him sleeping in his car and she gives him like a dirty look like rolls her eyes yeah he like he doesn't need your fear and he doesn't need your dirty look he needs someone to help him out need someone to just and nobody tell him is he's there a to person. help him out which i mean i think it's really interesting that it never got to the point where he got to confront 
the um, Melinda, the adopted mother, um, because I get the impression that she is someone who would have helped him out. Yeah, because she sees a lot of the signs of of, of illness in, in the daughter. I mean, the daughters. Well, like they, they fear like, they fear that there could be something they do. there. Yeah, yeah and, and, and but she's also lost her mother's dead her, and her, her father's, father's yeah. institutionalized. So like, but obviously, like like a lot of mental illness. Is, is, is brought on by well and so is that where we I mean is that where the movie goes then at the end is that like our you know the viewer's choice and the society's choice to not see these people as people like are we kind of is she destined to kind of live this mildly broken life where she's even though she has this caring adoptive mother who admittedly forgets to pick her up at school that day um is she forever broken by the fact that her parents were ripped from her violently? No, no, I don't think she. I, don't, I wouldn't say she's necessarily violent, you know, just ruined. But she's de- no, no, there's but definitely the idea that the idea that we're going to pers- the idea that she might not be ruined, but that she might not be getting she might not be getting the care that she requires because, like they like the woman said, like I'm your mother. Like, yeah. oh, my mother's, you know, I don't have it, you know, I don't have a mother. Like, oh, I'm your mother. And she's like, you're not my mother. So everyone's just kind of saying, like, we'll just play your role. Your, your, role, role, is, your role is to be kid. My role is to be mother. This woman's role is to be grandmother. And even the grandmother, she's, she, treats, watch, her, she yeah. treats her at a distance still. Like, like, still expecting her to be having the same problems as Peter. I mean, we can read into the idea that, like you said before, his um, Kerrigan's production company is DSM-3 DSM three. Productions. Yeah. Um, based on the Diagnostic and Statistical yeah. Manual of Mental Disorders. is I don't want to pigeonhole him as a director who's like, you know, always looking out for like the mentally disabled or the, you know, the mentally challenged. But I think... But it's definitely a theme that... That, that, that runs through his, his, films, that runs through I mean, his stuff. And I think he... But I think more artistically, he's using them as a way to hold up a mirror to society and saying like, you can't overlook things that make you uncomfortable. Well, yeah, and you he can't falls pigeonhole about... people that that you just kind of you can't pigeonhole people as disposable just because you don't want to you don't want to deal with it. Well, he follows up this film with with I believe it's called Claire Doan about a prostitute. You know, yeah, another another sort of disregarded you know individual in society, and then follows it up with Keen, somebody who also suffers from from very similar mm-hmm. schizophrenia. Like, like it is an undercurrent in his films, and even I guess going off of girlfriend experience, I haven't watched the show. But, I've watched the show with you. I mean, I assume it's probably not as impactful. But it got and it. Got, I think it gets good reviews. And it got nominated for some stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but but still, def- like definitely it. disregarded people are people who who society expects to be pigeonholed or are put put in a place underneath the expectations of society. Mm-hmm. And I think this film just masterfully kind of holds up the mirror to say like, go fuck yourself. You are the ones that caused this. You are the ones that, that, you know, made a man who was sick, ill, but ultimately looking for what any, anybody else would be, you know, like a relationship with his daughter. Mm-hmm. And you are the ones who denied him that because you expected him just to be a monster. He wasn't. And you expected him to just get better because you wanted him to. Yeah, or expected him just to to disappear because it, he made you uncomfortable. Yep. I don't know. That's my ninety eight. I think that does it for this episode of Pivotal Film. Uh, you can now subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. 
Anyway. You can listen to us on... I believe it's called iTunes, Tom. I think it's called Apple Podcasts. Is it called Apple Podcasts? I think now? that's what everyone says on all the podcasts. Really? Yeah. They don't say iTunes? I think Apple Podcasts is like a thing. Is that a thing? I don't, we're not... We're not in, I think we should talk about this for a while. We're not in deep enough touch call, I'm going to call this iTunes. I, yeah. I have a fucking Android. Go on iTunes, however you got to do it. Subscribe to us. Give us whatever you know what? rating Sac- you want. Sacrifice a few virgins to the altar of Steve Jobs. <laughs> Maybe one to Steve Wozniak, <laughs> like, and not a virgin. Maybe maybe like a, I don't know, like like a like a nice Macintosh Apple, um, and then eventually you'll you'll find your way to Pivotal Films, and you can subscribe to us. And give us, us a, a give us a three star review for that terrible advice. <laughs> if you give us three, stars, I sacrificed review. several people, and I didn't get anything for <laughs> it. Or All I got was this T shirt. You can go. Um, so yeah, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, um, Stitcher. You said Podcast Addict. Oh yeah, we're on. We're basically, basically any of the yep. podcasts of your choice now. I believe I, all of them are fucking attached to yep. Stitcher. Subscribe. And um, you can write it's to a us. big cabal of, <laughs> of goddamn podcast subscriptions run by the lizard people. Um, you can um, write to us at uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to our website, pivotalfilm.com, and we'll put the movies that were on our list up there. We'll put the beers that we're drinking up there. Um, and you know what? After having most of the second beer, I can still say it's it's interesting. It's a good it's beer. It's Green Warden, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, if you find yourself up in Maine or anywhere else in New England because we're very far away. Yeah, fuck you. Bandbrewing.com uh, <laughs> isn't... Isn't doing bad work. So, yeah, uh, no, they're doing good work. Yeah. All right, so uh, go see a movie, uh, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. All right.